0: Hello everyone, it's Jack from Cultaholic, back once again with my Matches of the Month, this time for November. Uh, this, is the, this is a strange month, because while there was a high quality of matches from various different promotions, I think this might be the lightest month in terms of the quantity of matches. Maybe everyone's winding down for the Christmas period. However, I will say, despite the relatively low number of matches, there's still plenty to talk about, and the highs are really good so without any further ado this is my matches of the month there is of course when we're talking about wrestling matches in the glorious month of november there's only one place to start survive this. the block. the Enough Yes, of course, we are heading to AEW Full Gear to talk about what pretty much everyone has instantly realized is a bona fide match of the year contender. Swerve Strickland versus hangman Adam Page in their Texas death match what can you say about this match? What can I say about it that hasn't been said already? I mean I'll try but what a what a spectacle it was I've seen more ridiculously violent matches I've seen better worked matches but I'm not sure if I've seen a, a better match that blends those two categories quite as well as this one did ever it, the, of this. I think Dave Meltzer was quite, he got criticized for his review of it because he gave it five stars, but said, I didn't like it. And people are like, how can you not like it and give it five stars? Which I I, I get their point. But I do agree with what he said in terms of, um, of this genre of match, it could be the best one ever. It's not like an out and out trashy death match. It's not a kind of reserved story driven deathmatch. It's a hybrid of the two. And of that quite unique category, yeah, I can't think of anything better. It blends fantastic action and storytelling with quite outrageous violence. Um, And I don't know if there's been a match this year that's been more highly talked about, for its quality at least, because of all the good matches this year, and a lot of them have made a splash, and I've talked about a lot of them on, on, on this, well, this is the point of this very series, but that this match seemed to capture the internet straight away. Everyone was going, this is a match of the year contender. For that reason, for the instant notoriety it achieved, I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, come the end of the year, we see it topping a lot of end of the year polls across various websites and stuff uh, in terms of matches of 2023. Um, I, I know that it's going to be, spoiler alert, it's, gonna, it's in my top 10. You'll have to wait until the end to find out where exactly it lies in the top 10. But it's it's a top 10 match of the year, definitely. Um, you could say there's been more talked about matches in terms of uh, a booking decision rather than the action itself. Roman Reigns versus Cody Rhodes at WrestleMania is instantly one that springs to mind. Uh, in terms of stylistic matchups, Bryan Danielson versus Zack Sabre Jr. was talked about a lot for its dream match quality. Uh, MJF versus Adam Cole was talked about a lot because it headlined that massive Wembley show and had real suspense going in. Is someone going to turn on the other? And in the end, obviously, neither of them turned on the other. But in terms of just the quality and the spectacle of this match and everyone agreeing, wow, this was insane. I don't think anything in 2023 has felt bigger in that specific regard. Um, We all knew that it would have to be brutal given the storyline heading into it with Swerve invading Hangman's house and all that sort of stuff. But I don't know if anyone, we all knew it was going to be violent. I don't know if anyone could see it being quite as visceral as it actually was, especially the blood drinking spot, which while we were watching it in the office, off camera, like I wasn't on the live stream, but I was sat with a, a couple of the editors and we all kind of gasped when he did the blood drinking spot, Hangman, letting Swerve's blood dribble into his mouth and then spitting it out like a gruesome Triple H. Um, That wasn't the only thing, of course. The staple gun stuff, the broken glass, the bit where the barbed wire wrapped around the chair accidentally got caught on Hangman's... It looked at first like it was caught on his hair, but then it was actually caught on his face. Um, So it's definitely straight into my top 10. Uh, I'm not sure how high. You'll find out at the end of this podcast... I know it'll be many people's match of 2023, and I don't think it's quite going to make it to number one in my eyes, unfortunately. I loved it, but I think that it may be towards the end just missed the peak, and the match ended on a slight downturn from the crescendo that it reached a few moments earlier. That's a minor complaint, though. Um, I could also maybe have done without the Brian Cage interference. I get that you don't want Hangman to win clean, But I think you could have skipped maybe straight to the Prince Nana involvement without having uh, Brian Cage come out and attack Hangman. Uh, The the blatant interference kind of threatened maybe to cheapen the rest of the match ever so slightly. Again, it's not a major complaint. Um, But those are, yeah, as I say, those are minor criticisms. I thought this was outstanding and disgusting, but in a good way. Also, I thought it was brave in terms of the booking decision. I thought that Hangman would get his win back here, but they've gone perhaps the more intriguing route and and turned Strickland into a, an absolute star as a result. Straight after this match, people are already talking about Swerve should be an AEW champion in the future. Swerve should be... He himself has said he should be... He could well be, and it's his ambition, to be the first black AEW world champion. Um, and I don't think anybody could begrudge him that because the man's a star. And let's not underestimate Hangman's role in helping him reach that level as well, but... Full credit to Swerve Strickland, man. He's proven that he's got that star quality about him. His mannerisms, his his facial expressions, everything just all added up in this match and proved what a, a legitimate main event level talent he should be. Um, Hangman has disappeared for a bit, hasn't he, in the aftermath of this. Uh, certainly no dealings with Swerve. I wonder what's going to happen whenever this is picked up again, however far uh, down the line that comes. There was other good stuff on this show as well. Although, I don't know if those matches made for some of my very favorite matches of the month. I thought the ladder match was pretty good. Maybe a little bit too spotty and construction-y for my liking, though, to make the top 10. Moxley versus Orange Cassidy was pretty good as well. Um, Maybe they will sneak into my top 10, but I don't really have too much to say about those matches, purely just because, you know, Swerve and Hangman rightly dominated the discussion coming out of the show, and Moxley-Orange Cassidy was a rematch which, you know, I enjoyed the fact that Cassidy won. I was surprised about that result as well. I thought that, um, all the, like the spamming of the Superman punches played well off the angle earlier in the week when Moxley no sold one of the Superman punches or the, I should say the orange punch, excuse me. Um, I thought that was utilized very well. I think I'll, I preferred that one to the ladder match, but the ladder match had some big moments as well. I thought Malachi Black and Brody King was superb in that match. Um, I hope everyone's okay coming out of that match because there was some high-risk stuff. Um, And I like the fact that they kept the tag belts on Ricky Starks and Big Bill for now as well, at the time of recording, of course. Um, And you know what? Purely in a a sort of character-driven sense, I quite enjoyed the opener as well. Um, uh, Adam Copeland (laughs) scaring Christian Cage, not just out of the ring, but out of the arena towards the crescendo of the match as well, where he ran entirely through the crowd and it was a hilarious camera shot. I enjoyed that as well. But the the other big talking point out of Full Gear, the other most discussed match apart from Swerve Hangman was of course the main event uh, and the thread that preceded it throughout the show. MJF being injured on the pre-show, Adam Cole stepping in to defend the title in his place and then MJF making it in time to to bravely wrestle anyway just, just before he was about to lose the belt. Um, this wasn't I don't know what to say. Now, in a vacuum, I guess, MJF versus JY white was a good wrestling match. It was very well worked between two very, very talented wrestlers. And it would probably have been the second best match on the show if it wasn't for all the surrounding context. So in a vacuum, it would have been really good. But obviously in wrestling, context matters so much. And I think the surrounding context of this match really, really drags it down, in my opinion, uh, quite considerably as well yeah, as I say, both very talented guys, but the circumstances leading up to the match really ruined my suspension of disbelief unfortunately. and and that's that's killer. That's that's like that's death in wrestling. You don't want to be watching a match distracted by, well, does this even make sense, especially a, an ultra serious high stakes main event match. So that was a disappointment to be fair. I think the main problem, certainly the first one that sprang to mind while watching it live, is that we're supposed to accept that Adam Cole is allowed to defend this title for MJF and hasn't even changed into his ring gear before the match? And then on top of that, we've got the very notion that this is somehow fair in the AW universe. This doesn't, like, happen in wrestling, does it? At least not that I can think of. If a heel stable injures a champion going into a match, that that doesn't mean that their leader, the, the challenger, automatically wins the belt when the face can't then defend it, right? How does that make any sense? Uh, as, uh, and I guess you could say, like, the rules and the customs of any particular wrestling promotion depend on the fictional universe that it's built for itself. But I think that makes it even worse because AEW have in the past really stressed that they didn't, at least, you know, a couple of years ago, they didn't want to strip injured champions of titles. They would create interim ones instead, or at least give them a chance to wait until they recovered from their injury. And this was a total 180. It was um, very at odds with both general wrestling convention. And the company's own recent history. Um, the match itself, I've already mentioned, was good in terms of the work in the ring, but I think in terms of booking, this really didn't succeed. Um, specifically, how it makes both guys look. MJF looks good coming out of it. Yeah, he looks very brave and everything. But I think real harm has been done. To, uh, I heard Brian Alvarez ridiculing people who are about to who, who said the opinion that I'm about to agree with. But I think it really. Harms Jay White here. I get that he shouldn't be winning the title from MJF, nor did I want him to, but I also didn't want MJF to win under these circumstances. Like I say, I heard Alvarez say after the show that people were idiots if they thought that Jay White was buried here. But how can you look at what happened and not think that he looked bad? He couldn't be, you know, a severely injured champion even after interference from the guns near the start of the match as well, even after hitting him with the belt towards the end of the match. And yeah, MJF had to use the diamond ring and everything, but he he had to overcome so many odds to get there. And, and I, I just think Jay White looks a little bit incompetent, in character, of course, as a result. So yeah, I didn't like much of this at all, unfortunately. If the surrounding context had been even a little bit less disastrous than it was, I'd probably have made it one of my matches of the month, but it really gets spoiled by everything around it. And I think that's a massive shame. She's the genius of the sky, but this is ridiculous! Oh my God! Mio sky from the top of the cage! And now Cody Rhodes with a bull open in hand! Paying homage to his father, the American Dream! Priest is going to cash in! Not in war games! Survivor Series, then. Survivor Series War Games, I should say. Uh, There's one thing that everyone was talking about coming out of this show, but I'll I'll get to it. I'll give my thoughts after talking about a couple of the matches, because that is the primary objective. And I guess we'll just go chronologically. So, starting with the Women's War Games match, this was an interesting one. Maybe the more interesting of the two in terms of storyline development. Initially, earlier in the week, building up to Survivor Series... I thought this was going to be a win for Damage Control after adding all these new members and because Triple H loves strong heel stables and this would have been their first major victory together. And then I think WWE's booking kind of undid the suspense a little bit for me heading into the show at the last possible hurdle on the go-home SmackDown. Um, Basically... I thought Damage Control were going to win right up until the night before, where not only did Charlotte Flair and Becky Lynch lose a tag team match in the main event of SmackDown after not being able to cooperate, but it was Bailey who got the pinfall as well. And then I realized, oh, and I think many people realize this at the same time, oh, this is not going to be the story of Damage Control winning their first big match together. This is going to be the story of Charlotte and Becky overcoming their differences to work together when it really matters. And also, On the other side of things, it's also going to be the first big development in the presumed story of Damage Control kicking Bailey out of the group, which hasn't happened yet at the time of recording. And you know what? I thought the War Games match, therefore, even though maybe it was robbed of a little bit of the suspense going in, I still think it achieved its objectives. It it told that story well. Bailey doing everything she could to help her team, breaking up pinfalls, rushing around trying to help her teammates, and in the end, uh, taking the spear as well. Uh, saving Kyrie Sane from that Charlotte Flair spear and still losing in the end, giving the rest of the group unjustified motivation to kick her out and therefore us motivation to feel bad for her as a result. Um, So I think that worked really well. I think that achieved its goal. Although I'll be interested to see going forwards once they do turn on Bailey, whether people actually boo damage control. I don't know if that'll be quite successful just because they've got so many great popular wrestlers, but we'll, we'll have to see how it goes. I mean, popular heels being cheered isn't unusual in wrestling, is it? I guess this match's weakness was the decision to give the advantage to, like, the fan vote, which obviously meant the baby phases had the numerical advantage going in, which meant it had, like, a weird format. War Games is almost always better when the heel team starts with, you know, the two-on-one advantage, and then it, it progresses from there. Because this... You know, when when it's the babyface team with the advantage, it just feels totally backwards. It is something that often gets tried for some reason, and I'm not certain why. Anyway, the match didn't suffer too much because of that. I just think it would have been even better if it had been the conventional way around. Um, But the match had big strengths as well, mainly the Bailey storytelling, but also, Jesus Christ, that Eosky trash can dive. She did it before in NXT. She's done it again on the main roster. It's an insane spot. Fair play to her. I can't believe... I can't imagine having the ability or the balls to be able to do that. It was amazing. Charlotte Flair's moonsault was exciting, but it unfortunately absolutely destroyed Eo as well. She caught her with a knee on the top of the head, but thankfully Eo was okay to continue. But that was quite a scary moment. Uh, and I think the Charlotte and Becky stuff was an effective babyface moment too. So yeah, I don't think it's a match of the year contender or anything like that, but it was certainly enjoyable for what it was. Now on to the men's war games match. I thought... Well, at first, earlier in the night, I thought, what on earth are they doing? The the backstage stuff, I mean, with Orton not showing up yet while the show is taking place in Chicago with these rumors swirling around. It was obviously just going to cause people to chant for CM Punk. I thought it was so stupid. And then, yeah, turns out WWE actually knew what they were doing. Um, So fair play. That was quite clever, it turns out, in the end. Now, to be fair... I didn't enjoy the ending to the go home raw with Cody's weird reveal of it being Randy Orton without Orton actually being there. But I understood why they did it, because if they hadn't done that, it would surely have led to a lot of people before Survivor Series started, assuming it would be punk and possibly hijacking the whole show. So, yeah, on the night of the pay-per-view itself, I was like, they've undone all of their very sensible work in the week building up to this. And then everything got flipped on its head right at the end of the show. The match itself was cool. Some really impressive and dramatic moments, I thought. Like, you know, most notably the huge RKO to J.D. McDonough towards the end. The fake cash-in with Rhea Ripley as well. And then Randy Orton's big arrival. Uh, he got a monstrous reception, which was, you know, eclipsed later on. But it was still huge. and You know, it, it shows the enduring popularity and legacy, pun very much intended, of Randall Randall Keith. I also really enjoyed a little bit where Randy hasn't yet come out. The baby faces are in control. Cody and Seth have just teamed up to use this bull rope to take out a few of the heels and then they argue. But it's not like a macho wrestling argument, like let's beat each other up. It's more of like a panic. Like they're bickering. Seth's going like, where is he? Where's Randy? And Cody's like, I don't know, right? Let's just keep going. I thought it was great. I thought it was like something from like the middle of a really tense war scene in like a a film. But yeah, it was, I thought it gave a nice sense of realism there. Um, Good character moment. I also enjoyed, speaking of character moments, I like Jay Uso gaining Randy's trust by saving him from Damian Priest with that super kick. And the general tension between Drew McIntyre and Damian Priest was very good as well. This match, I'm noticing as I read this like along, my thoughts, my notes here, this match really juggled a lot of things quite well, didn't it? Um, I guess that might be the main reason I overall preferred it just about to the women's one. But the reason that I say the women's one was maybe more intriguing, if not quite as good, is because it raised a big question. What's going to happen to Bailey? Whereas... The men's match, in contrast, I don't think raised any questions. It just answered a lot of questions. Like, will Randy and Jay be fine working together? Yes, they will. Will Cody and Seth be fine working together? Yes, they will as well. Will they all manage to work together to beat the Judgment Day? Yep. Will Priest cash in on Seth mid-match, which a few people had predicted would happen? Uh, The answer was almost, but no. And then afterwards we realized, oh, this match didn't have any developments of its own. It was like a final chapter of something. And I thought that was weird for about a minute and then cult of personality hit and we all realized, oh, it didn't need any major developments going forwards because this is the major development going forwards. So a few thoughts on the CM Punk return. Um, It's not really in line with the rest of the theme of this podcast, but I can't resist talking about this. I did it during the WrestleMania special as well when I talked about my thoughts on Cody not being given the win over Roman at WrestleMania. And, you know, Punk might well be my favorite wrestler of all time on balance, so... I'll throw I'll throw my two cents in, I suppose. I'm obviously delighted about Punk's return. really pleased he's back. That's not to do with promotional bias. I was delighted when he came back to a w and I was delighted when he came back again to a w after being suspended and then I was gutted when he got fired because for as long as he's able to wrestle and tell stories at a high level, which I believe he still is, I will always pick seeing. CM Punk on my TV over not seeing him on my TV, regardless of which promotion he's in. He's, uh, yeah, he's one of my, maybe my favorite ever. He's definitely one of my favorite wrestlers ever. So that's just, you know, as a fan, I can't really, I can't really say more than that. Um, And I've seen a lot of people with similar opinions, but I've also seen a lot of people very bitter that he's back. I'm talking about even before the Raw promo, which, Did dilute my excitement slightly, but we'll see what he does going forwards. I'm recording this before he's then come out for the first time on SmackDown, so I don't know what's happened from then on. The Raw promo was a little bit rushed, a little bit disappointing in terms of, not the delivery because Punk's amazing at promos, but in terms of the content of it, it did feel like they played it safe very much so. But I'll be patient. I'll see what happens. But even before that Raw promo, I saw a lot of people very bitter that he was back in WWE. Calling him a hypocrite and that sort of thing, which was always going to happen, of course. But I guess because it seemed like the driving force behind many of these arguments that I saw online was that because I guess because they were fans of or they picked the side of the people he fell out with in AEW, or maybe they just weren't fans of the way he conducted himself in AEW. And I understand that. Like I'm a big fan of Hangman Page, and I thought the way Punk treated him, at least from our point of view, definitely seemed really unfair. I thought the the stuff with the Bucks back and forth, the really petty stuff, that seemed a bit more equal or balanced, but from what it seemed from our point of view, just as fans on the outside, it did seem like Hangman hadn't really done that much wrong and Punk was, like, taking it a bit too far, to be honest. So I get the Punk. My point is I get the Punk's an uncompromising, controversial, sometimes mean-spirited guy, but my stance throughout all of that AEW turmoil has always been this, and it hasn't changed. Wrestling is full of difficult people. And just because Punk is more obvious about this than most, and a bigger name than most as well, I guess it magnifies it. It makes it seem worse in his regard. But wrestling's full of difficult and often selfish people. It's a business which I think inherently plays into ego and greed. Wrestlers want to make money and be popular. And whether that's through becoming a big star or having great matches or politicking their way into positions of influence wrestlers want money and popularity, often because more popularity equals more money, but it, it it rewards often self-serving behavior. And wrestling is full of people just as much of a dick as CM Punk, if not far worse. Um, and I often think the reaction to when Punk does something is massively outsized compared to what he's actually done. That could be a controversial opinion from myself. I know a lot of people were very disgusted by his actions towards the end of his AEW run. Um I think there's far worse out there. But again, that's just my own take. And if you disagree with me, that's totally fine. Um and and it losing him to WWE or firing him, excuse me, firing him, and then him joining WWE, well, it, it did make AEW look bad for a bit. We'll see if they recover from this blow. Um at the start of AW, I did consider myself a big AEW fan. And unfortunately, I no longer would particularly say that I favor them over any other particular promotion. I still enjoy their pay-per-views. I think their pay-per-views deliver in spades more often than not. But I think the weekly booking of their TV has become a mess, unfortunately. And I'm now, yeah, like I say, I'm no longer more or less a fan of AW than I would be of any other promotion. And that is a real shame, because I was very excited at the start of AW. I thought this was like the revolution, you know. I, I was there at Double or Nothing in Vegas, and it was a tremendously exciting time. But I think... To tie this back into Punk, I think a lot of people seem to think that Punk has tainted AEW. And when he got fired, that was like the first step of the antidote. That was the first step towards AEW getting back to normal. And in my view, that's totally irrelevant. It's not to do with that. I think AEW started to lose its way, not when Punk came along, but when Cody Rhodes left. And I don't know whether that's true, but it felt like maybe Cody was, like had some influence backstage, maybe had the ear of Tony Khan, and was helping him when it came to these cleverly written, long-term, emotionally rewarding storylines. It seemed right out of Cody's wheelhouse, and again, that's pure speculation on my part, but it just so happens that when Cody started to become closed off from the rest of the roster, and have his own isolated storylines in the so-called Codyverse, as we all termed it, online, that's when things started, I think, to get a bit more wishy-washy, a little bit more loose on the rest of the card, and then when he left, it's kind of all become that. Um, So yeah, even though I'm not saying that those like long-term emotionally rewarding storylines are totally absent from AW now, but, you know, it's it's just swamped in so much other stuff now that isn't as effective. I don't see it as a punk problem, the AEW downturn. Maybe a re- releasing of Cody problem. When it, Right, when a billionaire like Tony Khan sets up a wrestling promotion, it's quite a unique situation, isn't it? It naturally must set up a power struggle behind the scenes. No matter how much everyone looks like they're all getting on in a public-facing sense, because everyone's going to see him as a cash cow or a way to turn themselves into a major star in wrestling or, as we've seen with many people, often who've jumped ship from WWE, a way to prolong their own careers that were winding down. And I think that this power struggle, all these wrestlers trying to, you know, gain influence within the company, trying to benefit from Tony Khan's resources, I think that's resulted in the company, for lack of a better term, possibly eating itself Whoever it is who's won this power struggle for now. I guess it's the EVPs. I guess it's the Bucks and Kenny. I think they fucked it. I think when everyone was pulling together, AW was dynamite, literally. Like, it was, it was exciting. It was raw. It was fresh. It felt like it had a real surge of energy behind it. Now it feels like everyone's pulling in a different direction. And I don't know whether to, like, blame the EVPs, but it feels like they kind of... And he didn't, you know, he wasn't innocent in all of this, but they kind of drove away their biggest name in CM Punk. And they also, I don't know if we'll ever know what happened between Cody and the EVPs, but suddenly he wasn't there anymore, despite really being the most let's-go AW for life out of all of them. Um, And I, I know, like, they were all best friends and filming little skits together. But then suddenly he was isolated on the roster, having his own storylines, as I say, in the Cody-verse with a small select number of people. And then he left. And I, I don't know what happened there. I don't know if we'll ever know, as I say, but it does feel like the Bucks have won. They're still in power in the promotion. They've still got Tony. And I hope I'm wrong, but it might have resulted in the company becoming or resulting in the company getting to a state that it just can't recover from. And I don't think that's all on CM Punk. And I think the narrative now is perhaps starting to shift away from people thinking that it was his fault. He was the toxic element. And now the dust's cleared after his firing. I think maybe this will become more and more apparent. Anyway, Punk in WWE. God, it could be a car crash, couldn't it? But what an exciting, bold move from Nick Khan and Triple H, one they absolutely did not have to take uh, because they don't need CM Punk. They're making so much money. And yet it seemed like a, a... a signing born out of passion and excitement for what could happen going forwards. It could well spell disaster. It could also lead to some of the best storylines we've seen in a decade. Everyone's going to be watching either way, aren't they? Um, It looks like Punk versus Rollins is the way they're going. That could be very cool. I find that Seth's recent feuds have often failed to engage me emotionally just because his character seems to laugh everything off. That's why I quite enjoyed the Nakamura one, which went a different route and showed Seth to be more vulnerable and human. I like that a lot. But with Punk... That's like the Nakamura feud times a thousand. With Punk, we get Seth to really kind of exhibit some range. He can be angry, outraged. He can be jealous of Punk. He can be insecure about Punk. He can be the loyal company man saying, why do you belong here? Maybe all of that and more. I think Punk gives Rollins something to really get his teeth into. I'd also take just what I was speaking about before. I'd also take Punk versus Cody, 100% although only if Cody isn't the man who's going to beat Roman and I hope he is Punk could retire Cena there's so many there's so many possibilities out there Um, give him 20 minutes with Akira Tozawa they'll tear the house down I, I don't mind what he does next as long as CM Punk's involved I'm very biased when it comes to Punk I know a lot of people listening to this will have disagreed with most of what I've just said regarding him but I for one am very excited about what sort of wrestling television we're going to see going forwards 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. Ultimate Party 2023. AW's Chris Jericho makes his first DDT appearance against Konosuke Takeshita in a bout straight out of American television. From Shinki-Baturo to, to Japan's Takashi goes up against Suzuki Hirata in a rematch 12 years in the making. Two of DDT's top titles are at stake as well. What are you waiting for? See you at Ryogoku Sumo Hall. Right, November also saw one of the promotion DDT's big... Shows of the Year. And I had several big matches that I do want to talk about. Um, Three of them to be exact. We'll start off with the one featuring the biggest name, at least to a Western audience, Christopher Jericho. He took on Konosuke Takeshita and it was a weird one. I'm conflicted about it. There's positives and negatives. On the positive side, the match itself had some really good moments. Takeshita in particular, I thought wrestled his balls off. Um, and as the match wore on, you could tell that Jericho was making a real effort as well, similar to how he did with Osprey at Wembley. Although I don't think this match was as good as that one. Um, it seemed like the match wasn't going to go that way at first. It seemed like it was going to be kind of a lazy effort from Jericho. He was doing his usual antics, grabbing a camera from ringside, throwing a chair into the ring out of like having a tantrum and that sort of stuff. But when things escalated into a real contest... Yeah, we got some above and beyond moments from both Konosuke Takeshita and Chris Jericho. I'm thinking mainly of a spot where Takeshita hit the blue thunderbomb off the top rope to Jericho, which didn't look like a pleasant move to take. So fair play to Jericho for doing so. Um, Yeah, generally it was a good match. The negatives, um, it felt a bit unbalanced. I enjoyed the second half of the match way more than I did the first. So it took me a little bit of time to get into it. I also thought the tone was a bit all over the place. Because this is a heated feud, right? This is Jericho versus a member of the Don Callis family, the man, effectively, that Callis replaced Jericho with as this kind of weird surrogate son figure in his life. Um, I guess he replaced Kenny Omega with him more, but Jericho's got that relationship with Don as well, as we saw in the storyline in AEW. So I thought this was going to be a wild brawl, but they start off grappling. Jericho throws a tantrum, throws a chair into the ring. Then they brawl to the stage for a bit, Then it becomes an actual match in the sort of Japanese main event style. And then, and this is another negative towards the match, unfortunately, I I think, Jericho wins via submission. Like Takeshita taps out clean. And then, even more baffling, they shake hands afterwards. So is this like non-canon? Does this exist in a totally separate universe to AEW? I don't think so, because why else was the match existing in the first place? So yeah, uh, even though I enjoy the action... And it could crack my top 10, I'm not certain yet, of the month. Not of, not of 2023, but of, of November. Even though it could crack the top 10. It, if, the, if it had been more heated, if they hadn't shaken hands at the end, and if Jericho had lost, then this would be well up there. I'd have really enjoyed it. Unfortunately, similar to MJFJ White, the surrounding circumstances really dragged it down. It was only one of two main events. It was the co-main event. The, the, the actual last match of the night was Chris Brooks defending his KOD Openweight Championship, DDT's top title, against Yuki Ueno. Um This was, I mean, I've mentioned Chris Brooks several times on, on this podcast in 2023. His title reign has been a real little highlight of the year. Kind of a, not a hidden gem for those who follow Japanese wrestling more closely than I do, but for people who are kind of trying their best to cover all the bases like myself, it's been a bit of a hidden gem. I've really enjoyed his um, his title reign. There's been several really good defences. I thought the match where he actually won the belt for the first time was excellent. Uh, and this match against Yuki was was good as well. I don't know if it was the absolute highlight of Brooks' reign, but it was um, it was a fitting conclusion because, spoiler alert, he lost the belt and Yuki is now the new DDT KOD Openweight Champion. Um... Yeah, it was... It was... Maybe... It was, a, it was a very good match. Maybe I've just enjoyed Brooks more this year as a babyface, often fighting against these, like, stronger or tougher guys and still coming out on top against all odds. He's played a really effective underdog role. Whereas here, he had to be the the heel bully, uh, a role that I'm far more familiar with him having because I've, I've seen him wrestle when he was on the indies in the UK, and he was often, like, this cocky, dickhead, cheating heel. Whereas... Here is the underdog babyface. No, sorry, in in his previous run with this belt earlier in the year or earlier in the rain, I should say, he was this brave babyface. It was unusual, but it was very cool. Now he's back to being like, at least in this specific match, the cocky heel attacking Yuki before the bell, you know, holding on to holds longer than he should be doing and everything. And it felt a bit jarring. It felt a little bit jarring for me, but that shouldn't take away from the fact that it was... Um, a very good match. And I think that the decision to put the belt on Yuki is probably one that DDT have had for quite some time just because um, he seems like their next big shining light baby face going forwards. I think he's like, is he in his late 20s? He looks younger. He looks, and I've seen more than one person say this as well. He looks like Koda Ibushi. Not just in terms of, his ring gear and kind of his physical appearance, his hair and stuff as well. But he looks like a Bushi in terms of the snap he gets on some of his moves. And I think that's very promising for DDT. So I'll be very keen to see what Yuki does with this belt going forwards. But also I want to commend Chris Brooks for his reign and for navigating the company through what has been a kind of a difficult 2023 for... Japanese wrestling promotions on the whole. So fair play to both men. Um, the last match I want to talk about from this DDT show was a six-person tag team match, which was kind of Saki Akai's retirement. Well, it wasn't kind of. It was her retirement match from wrestling. So it was a very emotional affair. It was herself and her two stablemates, Hideki uh, Okitani and Yukio Sakaguchi. One of them's One of them's a little naive good boy and one's a badass tattooed kickboxer. And then you've got Saki Akai, the one retiring, who is a bit of a jack-of-all-trades, really, isn't she? She's like a wrestler, a model. I think her dad was a boxer, it said on Wikipedia. Like, I was like, hang on. I didn't know that about her. I knew about the the kind of the many talents she has outside of wrestling, but I didn't realize that she also had a family with a history of combat sports, fair enough. Um, and she was given an emotional send-off here against kind of a dream team of opponents. You've got Namichi Fuji. The legendary, um, the legendary Japanese talent who had a great match with Osprey earlier this year, not too long ago. Uh, Marafuji is like a hero of Osprey's. And I learned while researching this match, he is also a dream opponent of Saki Akai's as well. So it's really nice that she got to face him in her final match. We've also got Kazusada Higuchi, one of DDT's big, scary heavyweight boys, great wrestler, big fan of his. And Miyu Yamashita as well, the ace of Tokyo Joshi Pro. Um... It wasn't the cleanest match of the month. There were a few mistakes here and there, but that wasn't really what the match was about. It was about the emotions. It was about the story of Saki Akai saying goodbye to in-ring competition. And the end of the match was really stark as well. It was really striking what happened. So you've got Saki is just kicked out of a move that should have really put her away from Mayu Yamashita. The other four, the four guys in the match, they all start brawling and trying to trying to either help you know, Saki or help Miu. And instead, they all look at each other and they all vacate the ring. And they say, right, it looks like this is the end. Let's just see how this plays out. They all get out of the ring. They leave the two women in the ring. And Yamashita, in almost (laughs) HBK Ric Flair fashion, finishes off Saki Akai, ends her career. And it's a great ending to what wasn't a perfect match, but was a very effective and emotional one. I also want to give a special shout out to after she's taken like the final, I think it was like a big kick or a big knee strike. After she's taken the final blow, we see Saki's facial expression as she hits the canvas and it's brilliant acting because she's obviously got to sell the move being dazed, being knocked out, but she's also got to sell, oh, this is the end. Like, And she looks, I don't know if heartbroken is the right word. She looks like she can't believe it. Like the reality's hit her. Like, oh my God, this is it. This is, I'm getting pinned. This is my last ever match. And I thought that, I don't know whether I'm reading too much into it, but I thought she conveyed all of that really well in one facial expression. I was just really impressed by it. So, yep, check this match out if you want, uh, and those other two I'd recommend from the show as well. Um, maybe DDT have had one of the better years for a Japanese promotion after a difficult year for many. I'm not sure. Let me know what you think. Which which Japanese promotion do you think has had the best 2023? I thought New Japan had a really good first half of the year and maybe waned slightly. Hmm. I think all Japan have had their bright spots as well let, let me know what you think on Twitter at Jack the Job Thursday, the new season of New Japan Pro Wrestling continues on Access TV. Two of the best in the sport today battle as Shota Umino challenges Will Ospreay for his self proclaimed IWGP UK Heavyweight Championship, looking for his first victory over the champion. Witness the unparalleled pageantry and hard hitting mat action that is uniquely NJPW. It's an all new episode of New Japan Pro Wrestling Thursday at 10 9 Central, immediately following Impact Wrestling on Access TV. Yeah, it starting- off talking about Will Osprey again, another month, another Osprey match to talk about. Only one this month, so there we go. Um, he had a match against Shota Umino, John Moxley's young boy, and one of kind of New Japan's pushers of the future. Like they want him to be a major star down the line. This was for Osprey's IWGP UK Championship, as he's named. Uh, excuse me, as he's named it. It was at the Power Struggle event, and it was long. It was like forty minutes long. Um, And I think it was a match that, even though he lost, Shota Umino needed, I think. Because in these early stages of his post-Young Lion, post-excursion career, returning to New Japan, it might not have gone as well as New Japan would have hoped. Not in terms of his ability, because he's very good, but in terms of his persona or the crowd's reaction to his persona, which is improving gradually. Um, The matches like this are always going to help. They're always going to be a big step forward. The match had a very interesting dynamic, I believe. Bit of insider knowledge here, guys. I think that Osprey and Umino are friends in real life. I'm not, I'm not certain about that, but I think I've heard that on the grapevine. At least they were when Shota was in England on excursion. But there's none of that evident in kayfabe here. Osprey is imperious uh, in this match. He's, he's pushing around the less experienced man. But Umino gets a bit above his station as well. There's hints of arrogance there too. So yeah, it's a, it's an interesting dynamic. And it's actually Umino in control early on. So Osprey takes things outside, gets a table, Umino reverses momentum and thinks about trying to suplex Osprey through the table, but instead, very honorably takes the action back in the ring instead. A huge mistake, mate. What are you doing? Um should have put Osprey through the table. You will go through that table later on. The crowd loved it though, so fair enough. Um the spot later on when Umino gets put through the table is a beautiful, picture-perfect execution by both men of a very difficult move. It's a, it's an amaz- it's a sit-out powerbomb off the apron, sideways through, I think, a pair of tables. And yeah, it's a very impressive demonstration of body control from both men. Totally in sync for that move. Looks perfect. Um, Osprey does a few cheeky Nando's kicks. One of them causes Shota's nose to bleed, But in like a happy accident, it also coincides with the part of the match where he starts firing up, so it provides a more exciting visual while he's bravely starting to no-sell Osprey's chops and that sort of thing. Yeah, as I said, the match goes on quite long, about 40 minutes. I'm saying 40 there. Sorry about my accent, not four. 40 minutes. Um, And you might think, well, that sounds like a bit of a drag, but there's always something to keep the match taking along, whether it be a big move, a shift in momentum, a big development... And then just when I started to think maybe it's going to drag a bit now suddenly John Moxley was at ringside urging Shota on and firing him up so that helped as well Moxley was a great presence at ringside um maybe would have been a bit tiresome if he'd been there for the full duration but I like the moment he came out was fairly close to the finishing stretch and it really provided the boost and the lift that the match could have used at that time uh, Osprey let Shota survive a lot of moves here and in return, and he also, I guess it's worth mentioning, Let Shota to steal a couple of his moves. I think Umino hit a uh, os cutter out the corner and attempted a hidden blade. I can't remember whether he hit it or not, but yeah, you don't see um, everyone do that to Osprey. So clearly, there's respect there outside of the ring. Um, it is eventually Osprey who gets the win as predicted, but it's a great showing for Shota Umino, and I believe a five star match from Davey Melts. So congratulations, Shota. Then. The aftermath's quite intriguing. David Finlay interrupts the celebration and beats down both Moxley and Osprey, setting up their, I think it's a triple threat match set for Wrestle Kingdom. Very intriguing one. He smashed up the belt with his big mallet as well, the bad man. So I don't know if Osprey's going to win that one because he's on his way out shortly afterwards. But then who, who takes the fall? Because you might look at that match and think, well, Finlay's taking the fall. But Osprey's the one on his way out. Finley's the one heading into the match with his momentum. Moxley is surely the one least likely to take the foot. I don't know. It's intriguing. I'm excited to see where it goes. <coughs> Sorry, Tom, that's not a like a break with music. I'm just having a drink of water. <laughs> Heading on over now to All Japan Pro Wrestling from New Japan. This match was for the All Japan Triple Crown Championship, their top title. The champion, Yuma Aoyagi defending against the man who recently jumped from Noah, Katsuhiko Nakajima. Bit of background here. Nakajima left Noah. Now he's in all Japan, but one of his last matches in Noah was destroying his old friend from their youth and training partner, Kento Miyahara, who's now the ace in all Japan. So he's beat him in Noah. He's left Noah. And now he's come to Kento's backyard to try and destroy him further. Very spiteful, very mean. Nakajima is a heel. Their match, by the way, is inside my top 10 currently is one of the best matches of 2023. It was fantastic. But now, Kento, despite being the ace of all Japan, is not the champion. Yuma Oyagi is finally the champion after trying to, (laughs) excuse me, capture that title all year, pretty much. Only now, he's got this new nightmarish foe to contend with in the form of Nakajima. Perhaps not who he was expecting to to defend this belt against. And it looks bad for the champion early on in this match. Nakajima's messing with him during the lockups and drops him on his head early with a sick, devastating Saito suplex. And just from The tone and the moves chosen early in this match and the mannerisms of either man. It's very clear that all Japan know who they want to be their champion here. Even Aoyagi's hope spots are always kind of teetering on the edge of Nakajima taking control again. And he inevitably always does. And he's one of the best strikers in world wrestling. His strikes are so good, man. Um, Real edge of danger. Yes, last year there was controversy, controversy surrounding Nakajima because he did legitimately knock a couple of his opponents dizzy with these strikes, but he seems to have tightened that up a little bit now, hopefully. Later on in this match, the champion gets desperate and lands his biggest blow of the bout. A back suplex on the apron, with he himself falling down to the floor as a result. He's had to to take a lot of punishment to even get back on terms with Nakajima. So dominant has Nakajima's performance been. It's not a squash match, I'm not saying that. It's back and forth, but for a Japanese main event title match, they're rarely this one-sided. Like, it was quite shocking. Again, not a squash match. It's not Cena Lesnar, but it's it's teetering towards that sort of area. Back in the ring they go after that spot. I think they have an exchange where Nakamura gets back on top. He's just on fire despite Yuma's brave efforts trying to defend this belt. Things get a bit more even down the stretch until very very close to the finish, where Nakajima's he's won it before the pinfall. He's peppering him with kick after kick. Big brainbuster. The champion kicks out, but it's just inevitable from there. One more big move. And Nakajima is the new All Japan Triple Crown champion so soon after even debuting in the company. Um, And it is, like I say, for a Japanese main event title change, it is dominant. There's a real sense, which I think was deliberate in this match, of, oh shit, this new champion is bad news. He is scary. And I really liked it. I thought it was very effective. I cannot wait for... Nakajima Miyahara Part Two, because that match I think is going to be insane. I also don't know who's going to win. You'd think Miyahara would get his win back, but you'd also think they wouldn't want Nakajima to lose to Kento in his first reign with the belt. Maybe if he's, maybe if they save the rematch for further down the line, perhaps. We'll have to wait and see what happens. Anyway, now heading over to a promotion that I've not talked about as much as I nearly as much as I thought I would at the start of 2023. Because it's it's not it like many, as I say, like many Japanese promotions, it's not been the best year for them. Uh, Dragon Gate, and Dragon Gate uh, had a match at the Gate of Destiny event for their top title, the Open the Dream Gate Championship, between the champion Madoka Kakuta and the challenger Big Boss Shimitsu. So I wish I'd seen this match without first knowing who had won. I spoiled it for myself by accident when I was finding the match. Um, I think if I hadn't known who would have won, it would have, I'd have enjoyed it even more. But never mind. Um bit of background, Kikuta is the champion and I think is seen in the Dragon Gate landscape as the kind of new leader of this younger generation on the roster, whereas Big Boss Shimitsu is older. They're both big lads, but Shimitsu's a big unit. And in terms of success, he's a bit of a nearly man when it comes to this big Open the Dream Gate championship. He's had a few title shots in the past and has come up short, but this time... The match is in his hometown of Osaka. So he's got this crowd really urging him on to win the belt finally. At like the third or fourth time of Asuka. I think both men are baby by the way. But the champion definitely has to play the heel role here because of the crowd, because of the story behind Shimitsu, and never quite getting it done. Anyway, this ma- I don't want to sound like I'm dumbing it down too much, guys, but this match is great because they're both big men. <laughs> Two smaller wrestlers could have had this exact same match spot for spot and it wouldn't have been nearly as good. But because they're so big and because everything has such weight and impact behind it, it was really good. There's also a brilliant spot. Just It's not like towards the end of the match or anything, just in the middle, but it's maybe the best hip attack I've ever seen delivered from the champion to the challenger. And Big Boss Shimitsu sells it like an absolute boss, nearly falling half, like he's halfway through the ropes. He's nearly falling out the ring. And it looked devastating. Like like I say, I wish that I hadn't known the result because Kikuta ultimately retains the belt, but he's had to really dig deep uh, and he's had to make a real effort. And and I thought if I hadn't known that he was going to retain, I would have bitten on several near falls down the stretch because it really looked at certain points like Shemitu was going to get it done and he just couldn't. Heartbreaking result. Not one that I can disagree with though, necessarily. Maybe don't take the title off this new young leader of the younger segments of the roster that's f- totally fair enough I just wish I hadn't known but great stuff regardless um, if the last match the All Japan one with Nakajima and Yuma Oyagi was a champion being very comprehensively de- comprehensively dethroned this was an example of like a champion hanging on to his belt but really having to dig deep to do so it was almost like the total opposite of that previous match why did why, it so why, why did these the love What the NXT Universe showing their love for all these former North American champions, and that, Dominic, we do have to thank you for. that oh, these three are back, and Wesley just got squashed, and there's Gargano, there's Cameron Grimes. You know what I would say on that? Oh, great. no, no, no. Oh, no. yes. I love this big man, Brunson Reed. NXT Universe on their feet. It's a fever pitch. It's the main event, and Bronson Reed is becoming a one man wrecking crew in this main event that Wesley so desperately needs to win. Can Wesley overcome the odds? We'll round things out by talking about NXT. NXT is a weird one. Like, I'm recording this a few days before deadline, the next big NXT special. And I always look forward to their specials because they always provide good matches. And last year, the Iron Survivor Challenge, the men's one, was one of my top 10 matches of the year. The women's one was great also. The the stipulation really got off to an excellent start in both divisions. So we'll see if they can follow it up this year. But the weekly TV, well, if you listen to the Cultaholic Wrestling Podcast, it provides us with a lot of laughs. It's not the wrestlers, it's the storytelling, it's the booking. It's bizarre. This match was... um, Here's another example of the weird booking. The stipulation of this match was the... If Wesley wins, he gets a North American title shot match between Wesley, Johnny Gargano, Bronson Reed, and Cameron Grimes. And the story is the other three are former North American champions who've gone up to the main roster. Wesley's a former North American champion trying to get that belt back and it's currently held by Dirty Dominic Mysterio. And Wesley needs to go through these other former champions to get his his shot at the title once again. But just make the stipulation a number one contender's match, Shawn Michaels. Why is it a, if Wesley wins, he gets the... Like, if one of the other guys had won, then what? They don't get a title shot. and Just nothing happens then. Obviously, Wesley was going to win this. That annoyed me a little bit. Anyway, the match itself, the highs of the match, the high points were very high, if that makes sense. Like, very inventive multi-man spots and sequences. Um, a lot of the match was centered around the unstoppable power of Bronson Reed and how the three smaller men were having to try and work around that. Unfortunately... There were some lows as well. There was kind of a... Well, first of all, the stipulation, which I've already talked about. But secondly, quite a bit of an element of cooperation in setting up some of these big moves. A similar a similar criticism perhaps to what I had for the ladder match at AW Full Gear. Um, but yeah, I don't want to take away too much from the quality of this match, particularly down the stretch. Uh, yeah, I thought Bronson Reed was excellent here. They were, all four of them were really. And Wesley... Predictably one way to telegraph the result. NXT. Nice one. Um, NXT is riddled with examples of this, by the way. Failings at just the very, very basic level of storytelling. Things that just don't make logical sense sometimes. Anyway, it's the weirdest wrestling show on TV. But it's not trying to be. It's actually trying to be cool and funny and fun. I, I don't understand. The match was good. It's nice to see the three main roster guys back in NXT where they get a nice welcome certainly more than they maybe are getting currently on the main roster. Unfortunately, though, in some bad news, even though Wes won and secured that title shot against Dom Mysterio, he's now having to take time off, I think, to get back surgery. I think it was reported he's going to be out for 8 to 12 months. So get well soon, Wesley. Hopefully he's back better than ever. Um, but yeah, that's unfortunate. And and it's not as important, but it's also unfortunate timing for the match at deadline against Dom. But they've got a replacement. Dragon Lee is stepping in to, uh, to take Wes's place. So, yeah, get well soon, Wes. And there we go. Those are my matches of the month. Now let's take a look at the top 10. At number 10, I think let's go for the match I've just talked about. Wes Lee versus Johnny Gargano versus Bronson Reed versus Cameron Grimes. At number 9... Um, Probably the ladder match from AW Full Gear. Number eight, probably Orange Cassidy versus John Moxley from Full Gear. Number seven, the women's War Games match. Number six, Chris Brooks versus Yuki Ueno in DDT. Number five, the men's War Games match. Number four, Will Ospreay versus Shota Umino in New Japan. Number three, Madoka Kakuta versus Big Boss Shimitsu, the big lad battle in um, Dragon Gate. Excuse me, nearly forgot which promotion there. Uh, number two, Yuma Aoyagi defending and losing his title against Katsuyuki Nakajima in All Japan Pro Wrestling. And number one, without question, my best match of November, and I think everyone's Swerve Strickland versus Hangman Adam Page in that brutal Texas death match. Uh, my overall top ten for the year. Let's see where that Swerve-Hangman match lands. Number ten, I've got Hangman versus Swerve but it was their first match at Wrestle Dream. That's number 10. Number 9, FTR versus Bullet Club Gold. Two out of three falls on AWTV. Number 8, Tomohiro Ishii versus Luke Jacobs at Rev Pro um, the night before, all in at Wembley Stadium. Number 7, that All Japan Tag Team match I always talk about. Kento Miyahara and Takuya Nomura versus Yuma Aoyagi and Naoya Nomura. Um, number 6, Nakajima versus Kento Miyahara in Noah before Nakajima left. Now we could get a really exciting rematch for the All Japan Triple Crown Championship. Number five. This might be too low for some people. Swerve Strickland versus Hangman Adam Page in that Texas death match. I really thought about it and I looked at the other four matches ahead of it And I honestly had to be really true to myself and say, no, I didn't quite prefer it to these four. So here we go. Number four, Will Ospreay versus Kenny Omega, Wrestle Kingdom. Number three, Kenny Omega, again, versus Will Ospreay at Forbidden Door. Number two, Brian Danielson versus Zack Sabre Jr. at Wrestle Dream. And number one, from WrestleMania, still clinging on as my match of the year with one month left to dethrone it, Gunter versus Sheamus versus Drew McIntyre for the IC title so there you have it those were my matches of the month for November thank you very much indeed for listening thank you to the marvellous Tom Campbell for editing this podcast and I'll see you at the end of the year for the December matches of the month and at the end as well of that episode I'll do a recap of my top 10 matches of the year. Maybe I'll dish out a few casual, unofficial awards like most underrated match, most overrated, that sort of thing. If you've got any suggestions for that sort of thing, do tweet me at JackTheJobber. And uh, once again, thank you very much for listening. I've been Jack from Cultaholic, and I'll see you very soon. Planning for your next trip?